Today on Time Out Coaching, we have a real rising star of British basketball coaching. Currently the director of basketball at the City of London Academy, winner of numerous national titles at all levels and coach to some of the top girls and women players that are playing today. Please welcome coach Jackson Gibbons. Coach. Thank you for having me, Tony. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for yeah. having me on. Listen, I, you know, I'll get into straight away. You know, I really, um, you know, you've got a great story like most coaches do have, especially in, in you know, coming from the UK. Um, so talk about this, um, you know, where you grew up and the whole how you got involved in basketball, because I think that there's a real importance to understanding that whole story and maybe how it influences you getting involved in coaching now. Yeah, sure. Um, I started playing uh, just before my 14th birthday. I'm a, a West Londoner, right on the border of Northwest London and West London. And I grew up single parent family, uh, you know, a little bit of difficulties growing up, lack of understanding, lack of male role model in my life. Uh, and, you know, being in the area that I grew up, there's kind of two sides to it. There's a nice area, there's a, a rough part and there's, you know, you can't really separate the two. And I, I think I've said, you know, on other interviews before, I don't come from poverty, but I do come, I came from dysfunction. I came from, you know, a family environment that, that didn't run very smoothly. And I, my mother probably won't thank me for saying that publicly, but, you know, the, my childhood was a very strange childhood. And so I grew up, playing football, soccer, you know, I've, I've played as, was part of QPR's academy for a couple of years and really enjoyed it, but something, you know, was missing. And I think that it was direction. And so my school went to play in a, a basketball tournament on one, on a weekend. And I was playing, I've been picked to play for my county or borough, one of the two, because uh, I played for Brent and Middlesex in, in football. And essentially, my PE teacher said, are you coming or not? And I said, no, nah, I got a game. And he, he was like, okay. And, and I went afterwards, one of me and one of my friends turned up afterwards. And, and when we watched the last part of the basketball tournament, I was just like, this is incredible. So I went down, uh, there was another tournament, sorry, maybe a month or two later. And I was like, yeah, I can't miss this. There's, there's no way. And went down and, you know, the, the tournament was at Mobley, which is, you know, nationally renowned as you know a really famous place in West London for playing basketball for me it's West London's mecca of basketball I know you've got other places in in London but Mobley over the years you know has really been known as, as a hotbed and home for you know London basketball and so uh, I went down to this tournament played like the most one-handed left-handed player in the gym and there were just all these older guys who were running the tournament and I didn't really understand what was happening, but people kept coming up to me and saying like, you know, you're really good. You, you, you know, your passing ability is really good. And I'm like, yeah, no, nah, I play football. I'm not really into, you know, the whole basketball thing. You know, I'm just playing as a tournament. I was, you know, not necessarily the most humble kid at the time in terms of, you know, I play for QPR and, you know, I'm a baller. I don't need to, but then, uh, Junior Williams uh, that day said to me, you know, why don't you, you come back on, you know, we've got practice on Tuesdays and Fridays, come down. And so I went down and, and I 
think I went to maybe one or two training sessions and I got pushed down to the, the Saturday morning session, the, the, the beginner session. And I just quickly, it's funny, you, you hear people like Kobe and, and some of the more you know successful NBA players talk about it. And we were talking about it in the office the other day. I quickly developed a list of people that I was trying to pick <laughs> off at Mobley of people, you know, sure. I want to go against this person. I want to go at that person. And the way that the scrimmages used to work on a Tuesday and a Friday is that the men would go down one end, the juniors would go down the other end, and there would be some older guys that weren't necessarily as good. And I just ended up working my way, picking people off until I eventually got good enough at, you know, 15 years old to, to sometimes play with the men. And I was, as I said, I was quite a conflicted kid. If, if anyone remembers me from back then, they would always say, you know, he's really rude, he's, he's feisty. And I didn't really realize until my older years, I, I didn't have a, a, a stable family structure at home. And if anyone knows Mobley in the 90s, this is, you know, circa 93, 94. If anyone knows, you know, Mobley, it, it was a family environment. It was a family atmosphere. It wasn't perfect. People would argue, I remember, tons of fights I remember mm. watching adults fight but those things would always get resolved those things would always get sorted out and it, it was just there was so much structure there compared to what I knew from sure. you know my home life and, and I was and always rude and cheeky because I wanted I didn't know how to garner adult attention yeah. I didn't know how to get people's attention and, and things and so through being at Mobley, you know, in my early years, I really had some fantastic role models. You know, I, I always have to shout out Steve Alexander because he was my first coach. And, you know, I, I learned so many valuable life lessons from him, although I hated him because mm. I didn't understand the life lessons. Let, I found let, him really let, hard to let, deal with. Yeah, let, let me, let's, you know, where I, that, that's, this is where I want to go with the conversation because, you know, right. um, I mean, you 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 talk about Mobley. I mean, yeah, there was there were coaches before Steve and a little bit after him. But what he created there was, you know, a unique, like you said, a, a family and a structure and a, a championship level, uh, you know, structure of 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 winning. But more importantly, of producing players. I mean, so you know, can you? Did you gauge, did you feel that at that time or was it kind of like a little bit like where it would have been like in Brixton and where we were in Hackney where, you know, it was just competition. As a young person, you're not really sensing any of this. You're just in the fire at that moment. Or did you sit, really, did you enjoy, you realized, hey, this is, this is something here and I see what this person is trying to set up here and, and maybe also reference some other people that were involved at that time as well. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't understand what it was. It was just, there were just a lot of positive, you know, black role models at the club at the time. And it was, it was a diverse club, but, you know, I come from biracial background and I didn't really have, you know, those, those strong male role models in my house. So, you know, you look back and you look at, at, at Junior Williams, you look at Namo Shiri, Julius Joseph doesn't know, he's like one of my all-time heroes. Like I just... Julius is about four years older than me, but anyone who remembers 90s basketball just knows Julius was unguardable before he went to the States even, but he was a, an inside player and came back from the States as a wing. And, mm. you know, those guys just, for some reason, they used to just take me under their wing. And I think they could probably see that I was a little lost, I needed help, and there was that, that structure there. And so, you know, some of the, 
I, I talk to our, our kids here at Cola about it from time to time. You know, when, when I was maybe 14 stroke 15, we would go to Mobley on a Saturday morning. I would do the morning session. We'd finish the, you know, the, the, the kids session 10 to 12. We'd shoot for a while. Then we'd fly up to Black Horse Road and go to Walthamstow where a guy called Tom used to run a scrimmage in the YMCA. And we'd play there like three to or two to four or whatever it was. I can't remember the times. And then we'd go from there and we'd travel to Turnpike Lane and we'd go and stay at TPL for the rest of the day until the sun went down. And that was the summer. That was my summer for maybe four or five years. It was a really good environment. But those guys would always take me. I was too young to go by myself. And I always needed that type of experience and, and those types of people around me. But I mean, Steve, you know, he I owe him so much. And sometimes I don't sing his praise enough. But there were other great coaches there. Josh Cole um, used to coach down Josh there. And Josh is an incredible wow. guy, like really, really good to me uh and then yeah just other guys there's a there's a lot of people around and it, it really did provide me with a lot of I, I wouldn't say it was as structured as when I was at Brixton it was a little bit different in terms of how the, the setup was but it was definitely a place where there were a lot of role models and a lot of older people that I aspired to be like and uh, you know Che Porteous I used to look up to as a young kid uh we had a point guard there Gideon Similoff a uh, really, really good point guard that could shoot. And I I think I was a sponge. I used to ask them a lot of questions, used to get on people's nerves and annoy them. But my, my thing was always I wanted to, I wanted to just be a part of it. It was really important for me to be there. And I, you know, I, I loved that club with all my heart and it, it definitely made me, it definitely mm. built me up. And uh, yeah, really That's glad of my experiences there. From, from Westminster, I mean, I don't think, the one thing that I always respect, and I talk to Junior about this all the time, and uh, um, Namo, um, and like the other guys, you talk about Julius and Mike Mine and stuff. Um, you you never ever left Westminster, but you you know you never that was never taken out of you. But you sort of, some of you, you know. Uh, people like Julius went on to have a huge professional career, Jay, Namo, all those guys, Mike, you know, but you, so where did you go uh, at that time where you were then maybe searching for something else? You, you went over to Brixton. How, how did that yeah. happen as well? So, I mean, we, we, I think we all say, you know, everyone who's ever played for Westminster, you bleed green and it's just, you know, it's from within. You don't ever, I really feel like it's a real strong, and I think that, you know, I don't know the context of the other clubs, but I've been a part of Westminster Warriors. I've been a part of Brixton Top Cats. And I feel the same way about, you know, the Hackney White Heat Stroke London Towers program is that when you play for a program like that with the family values and, and you know, in that environment, it never leaves you. You know, I can see guys who were at Hackney White Heat or London Towers when I was 15, 16 years old. There's a brotherhood between us just because we weren't necessarily ever teammates or on the same team, but there's just a mutual respect. And I think that the natural progression for me where Brixton Top Catch junior team was at the time and where Westminster Warriors junior team was at the time, it was for me to, to make the leap. And, you know, I think I was one of the, the top two or three players in the Westminster junior program. And I went to Brixton and I honestly just went right to the bottom of the, the pecking order. They just had, our team was incredible. We had, you know, Sean Gray, Marcus Knight, Lakin Popula, 
uh, Luol Deng was on our team, Stafford Ben, Marvin Addy, like just some guys that had great careers. And, and some of them, I think, really, you know, still quite underrated in this day and age because people don't necessarily know them. And they are, to me, they're legends of their time. You know, they're some of the greatest players from, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s. And yeah. going to well, Brixton... Sean, have- Sean, Sean Gray would have, uh, would have been Steph Curry in this day and age. I mean, can you yeah. imagine him now? I mean, Junior Junior Williams also would have been, but Sean Gray was like, he was just a killer. Like, uh, he could yeah. shoot, score from anywhere. And, like, he was incredible. He could still, sh- he could he still, could still shoot. shoot. <laughs> We're all a little slower than we used to be, but Sean can still put the ball past me, man. Yeah, he yeah. really can. But, yeah, it just, going there for me was just, uh, I remember it, it happened at Rough and Ready, and I was sitting down talking to Sammy Saki, and uh, so the interesting story is Jimmy... I got selected to play in the first ever rough and ready, but I turned up, you know, I, I didn't know the meeting time. I turned up late. Jimmy was like, who do you think you are, son? What, what do you think Westminster is some elite program that you get special treatment? I was just like, I don't know this guy, but you're kind of tearing me down. And he was like, yeah, you're late. And I said, I, I didn't know the meeting time. I said, okay, oh, no problem, no problem. And you kind of realized after a while when you knew Jimmy, when he said, no problem, no problem, there was going to be a lesson on the other side of that. Oh, and, uh, he proceeded to, to to bench me for the whole game. Right. And when he benched me for the whole game, people were calling my name in the crowd, like, put him on, put him on. I was just like, oh, this is so embarrassing. But I decided to learn from the experience rather than feel sorry or dislike Jimmy. And then my mm. dear friend loved this guy to pieces. Uh, Sam Saki was on, you know, we were sitting down watching the men's game afterwards. And he was like, it sucks what just happened to you, but that is Brixton. Like, you've got to learn from the experience and uh, he goes you know I think you should come I think you should come and play with us and I was like me I didn't I didn't think they respected me like that but I always seem to play well against them and and yeah lo and behold I kind of told Jimmy and and he was like yeah you can come over but Jimmy didn't recruit people he you had to ask to go to tricks and then I, I love the the mindset of Jimmy is if you ask to be there then he can coach you because he didn't beg you to come there. He wasn't trying to recruit players from other programs. And so, uh, yeah, I absolutely love my time there. Uh, I learned so many key life skills. You know, one of the biggest life skills I ever learned from Jimmy was if you screen away or you screen down, go and put your foot on the baseline, never understood it. And he would bawl me out. He would scream out my name over and over again. He'd bench me. The game would be going on behind and just be like, you won't listen. You won't listen. You won't put your foot on the baseline, son. You won't put your foot on the baseline. So I didn't understand why he wanted me to screen down and go and put my foot on the baseline. So sometimes I'd screen down, I'd go close to the baseline or I'd go this far away from the baseline. And he would say, you just won't listen. Every time I would do it, he would sub me out. And so one day he said, you know, after maybe a few weeks of it just going on and me telling all my teammates, oh, he's picking on me. He's, you know, it's not fair. Jimmy's just, you know, he's got a problem with me. He doesn't like me. And one day we were in practice and he said, okay, listen, let me show you why you need to go and touch the baseline because you won't just trust me. So let me show you. And he proceeded to set up an, an offensive scenario, sent one of my teammates who did listen to go and his foot on the baseline and lo and behold Jimmy hits the big the big gets a wide open layup because the help's too far away Mm -hmm. to come and recover and I'm stood there like ah and he said I told you you don't listen son you don't like and from that point on that 
life lesson from me from Jimmy really made a huge difference because even 10, 12 years later, I was still going and touching the baseline. If I picked away, I'm just going to go pick away, go put my foot on the baseline. And our kids hear it from me is like, it's, you know, there's great film any given Sunday. They talk about, you know, it's the inches, it's the inches that really count. And, you know, that is, it's the same thing in basketball is, you know, spacing it's the inches is if you can get the ball you know in the right areas and you can give your teammates enough space to play in it just changes the whole dynamic of the game and, and Jimmy wasn't for me you know he wasn't a finer details X's and O's coach he was no. a finer details be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it and that is you know that that's a huge mantra in my coaching journey is any kid that I've ever coached, they'll they'll know those two sayings. And Jimmy didn't necessarily tell me them, but I took that from him is, you know, mm. be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there and do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. And those things really, you know, it's a big makeup of, of my coaching, you know, my coaching ethos. You can uh, put that at the end as well. We'll get that back okay. into the yeah. saying. Um, at this time, now you've been coached by, I mean, two of the legends of... Of, of British coaching, you know, Steve Alexander mm -hmm. and Jimmy Rogers and a whole host of other people. Cause I'm a, yeah. I'm assuming um, at Brixton Ambo would have still been there or was it um, into, um, uh, yeah. Uh -huh. So, yeah. So when I got to Brixton, Ambo was still around, but he wasn't coaching. So Ambo and Jimmy would often tear me up, um, you know, coach to, coach to support her in the crowd Ambo would be like Jimmy get him off and <laughs> Jimmy would be like he doesn't listen Ambo and they, they would just tag team us and I for a while I was like who, who is this guy in the crowd but you know Ambo for me you know he, he he is the he used to typify tough love but you knew that he loved you he'd be in the crowd and you knew he was on your side you never doubted whether he was on your side and he he <laughs> excuse me he and Jimmy were just a double act they just they'd find a way they'd do good cop, bad cop all of the time. And you'd just be like, which one of them likes me? Which one of them dislikes me or whatever. But yeah, J Jabbar was our other coach Jabbar's and, and yeah. another coach in legend. our legend. Unbelievable. And, and, you know, as, as Brixton alum, a lot of us, no one will ever talk badly about Jimmy. We love Jimmy. Jimmy's, you know, the greatest coach. He's a father figure. He's a role model. He's a mentor. He's all of these things. No one would ever talk down about Jimmy and his experience, an absolute legend. But Jabbar doesn't get the credit that he no. deserves yeah, yeah. as well. well the yeah. I mean, done. when I listen to all of you, you know, maybe the Brixton players that were there at that time, um, you all will, you know, come out and give the credit to, to, to Jabbar. You know, that's all the way to Lowell. Um, you know, uh, um, Matthew, Justin, you know, every, all of these players, you know, do so. And I know you do as well. So at this time, um, you're a player. So that's the tunnel vision. Are you because of the way the basketball was set up and I know you're talking about some of the things that made Brixton this special program. Are you starting right. to do some community coaching? Are you doing some junior sessions? Um, and are you thinking yeah. about that in any way or are you doing it because um, it's part of the process? So yeah, anyone that knows Jimmy and Steve knows that you, you're going to, you're going to put in before you're able to take out. They're not just going to give to you for free. You know, nothing comes for free. You've got to work for it. So, 
16 years old, I, I went to, it's a terrible decision looking back, but you know, they say you shouldn't have regrets, but I went to Hammersmith College in West London. It was just uh, the fashionable college, the cool place to go. But, you know, as a, a sideline, Steve used to have me coach on uh, two evenings a week before I went to practice. So sometimes I would meet Junior Williams at uh, Queen's Park Station. We jump on a 36 bus and we'd end up down in Victoria and we'd go in two separate ways. He'd go to Victoria, I'd go to a school in Pimlico and I would coach in, in a primary school. And, and that stuff was really good for me because at 16, 17 years old, I was probably making seven pounds an hour, which for this generation will sound awful, but for our, you know, when you're a little yeah. bit older, that's probably the equivalent of 15 pounds at the moment. Definitely. And so, you know, Steve would send me there with my, you know, my bag of balls and I would go and coach these primary school kids. And it was just really good for me because it gave me so much value of understanding of teaching and patience. And, you know, the game is bigger than you and it will always be bigger than you. You should never view yourself as, as having made it because there's always going to be one step further. There's always going to be another plateau, another opportunity. And so going and coaching really made me realize that, that, these young kids sometimes would feel like, you know, they would always be like, coach, when are we going to play a match? And I'd be like, not ready for a match yet. We're going to practice for a while longer and I'll organize a match for you in, in the summer term. But it really did teach me, it gave me some reflection on where I was as a person and, and what I was able to do. And I just want to just dance back to the last question real quickly, Tony. The, the other person who coached us at, at Brixton in, in my final junior year was Amiko Atete. Oh, yeah. And Amiko wow. was unreal, man. Like, yeah. absolutely unreal person, wise beyond his years. I thought he, he had the wisdom of a 50-plus-year-old at the time, yeah, but he was, yeah. could have only been, I, you know, late 20s, early 30s. My, I'm, my mind is absolutely a sieve at this moment, and especially when it goes back to those that generation. I'm not 100% sure whether I coached Amico at the Bullets, um, whether I had the one year there or not. Yeah. But in whatever way, he was class personified as a person, 100%. you know, 150%. Whenever I've met him, you know, back in the day as a as a player, and then you know, you know, as a as a player at Brixton, and then moving in that whole sphere. So yeah, I mean, an, an incredible individual and someone like Definitely. you that you can you could see. Matter of fact, I say Flo Larkai has the, some of those qualities that you know they're almost you know they're kind of like that kind of like you you when you build professional teams those are the type of people that you you, sure. you know money can't buy those guys because they're yeah they're, they're the kings of the locker room and they build they, they keep everyone together great great guy great guy yeah definitely sorry i just needed to backtrack because he, yeah. he was a big yeah. part of my junior career because yeah. he he was he was a big pillar of confidence for me he would always be like you're so much better than you think you are and i'm like you know i i don't think I'm one of the best players on our team. And he's like, you can impact the game. You know, you've got Sean, Marvin Ambrosius, great shooters. You've got Flo and, and Luau. You know, Luau was 14 when we were 18, 19. But you've got, you know, the, these guys that, you know, are supremely talented. Marcus Knight, Lakin Popula, you know, Steve Onoretti. We had a really good team. But then he was like, but you can play defense. You can really change the game. You can pass. You don't need to worry about scoring. You're in a great city. And Miko just used to, you know, as the young people say nowadays, he just used to gas me up and it just gave me a complete 
different level of confidence. And so uh, our last game, we lost to London Towers in the final to, to the late, great Joe White. And if we were going to lose to anyone, you know, it would be that team. Some of those guys on the other team I absolutely adore. And, you know, they're still friends to this day. But, you know, at the end of my junior career, I ended the game and, and the last half of my career on the floor in the national final. It spoke volumes for what Amico put in my head at that time because we were stacked, but I found a way to be on the floor in the second half. And uh, yeah, we just lost to a really talented team. They had Richard Midgley, Sean Durant, Grant Abanja. Like that team was, you know, yeah. Wally uh, Daccarelli. This team was great. So, yeah. you know, it's no, no shame losing to that team. No, definitely not. Um, so uh, you're coming to, you, 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 you're, you're at the end of the junior career and stuff. What was the next stage there? And, you know, how were these, you know, any, this stuff starting to influence you from a, from a coaching perspective as well, or was that still a way down the road? So I, I, I would still do the Saturday session at Moberly for Steve. Um, and I would do a little bit of community set sessions, even when I was playing down at Brixton, but, you know, I've done some interviews before and I didn't mention it. I don't, I, I don't always like to go into, you know, every area of my life, but yeah. I, I think, you know, you'll remember really well that, you know, when you were at Towers, you had the under 23 set up and I so desperately needed something like that for the next stage of my progression because I went from the top of junior basketball to the very, very bottom of senior basketball. There wasn't four divisions back then. There was, no. you know, division one, division two. And I think maybe division three had started around about that time, but there wasn't a great deal of opportunities. There weren't a ton of teams that you could go and play for. And so my first senior year, I went and, you know, I went to a few places to, to kind of see what it would be like. Mm. And you know, Sean went to America, a few, a couple of the guys went to Sutton, a few of the guys went down to Kingston Wildcats to go and play when they were in Division One. And I kind of, I, I went and trained with those teams and just didn't feel like any of them would take me seriously. And I was just, you know, I would just be a bit part. And if I'm honest, I just completely got disillusioned with the game for about a year and a half and and fell into, you know, a, a different lifestyle and, and, you know, with some friends from school and friends from my area and got in, you know, quite a bit of trouble that I don't often talk about and we don't need to go into details, but it, it really taught me a strong life lesson of, you know, Jimmy and Steve gave me the tools, but I didn't listen. I didn't, I listened at the time, but then when I got disillusioned, I reverted to, you know, the path of least resistance, the things that seem easy, the things that, you know, don't take the hard work. And it took me about a year and a half. And I, I remember calling Steve and saying to him, you know, my life's a complete mess. And, you know, I went back to my first coach for the answer. And he listened to me. He listened to me for about, he took me to a, a restaurant in Kensal Rise. And he listened to me for about an hour and listened to all of the things that had happened and, and stuff. And he was like, he said, son, come back to basketball. He said, that's where you're safe. That's your home. And literally from that day, I, I just went back to training that night. I hadn't played in over a year. I was rusty. Every And 
from that day, I was just immersed in basketball again. And I realized the other side of life, the, the dangerous side of life, the side of life that I didn't want to experience that, you know, the basketball really keeps you safe from. And I started playing for Westminster Warriors men again. I think we were in division one at the time and uh, played a couple of years there. You know, it was a, a good setup that we had. You know, we always had a couple of Americans. We would play against, you know, you guys and we would play against somebody, you know, we'd go up and down the country. And it was a, it was a better program back then than people gave credit for. Like we used mm -hmm. to get a lot of stuff, like the, the team would really be looked after. But I always felt like that gap happened because there wasn't an under 23 team available and I think that that would have really really bridged a gap for somebody like me and I don't think I was ever a BBL player but I think you know at, at my best at times I, I was a, a solid backup in division one and you know I started for for four years in division two for for Warriors and you know I think that my career I always say to our kids I've been saying to kids since I started you know my career is quite hard to get as a player but it's not a, a storied career I think 2003, four, I led the country in assists uh, playing for Namo at Westminster Warriors, which is something that I share with the kids. But I always say to them, you don't want my career. My career, you, you guys, you know, the young people look at it and they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, it took a lot of work. So you got to outwork what I did for you to go and be successful, for you to go and get more. And, and you know, I always use that to encourage them so that they don't settle for less or make the same mistakes that I maybe made you know, right at the start of my 20s. But my, my coaching really started, I left, I flip-flopped between Westminster Warriors and Brixton for a couple of years. And uh, I went back to Westminster Warriors when I was about 27. And that was the time where there was the split between London Pioneers and Westminster Warriors junior program. And, you know, all of the junior players went over to Pioneers. And so at that time, Namo and I were doing Midnight Madness. I, I didn't, I wouldn't say I had free time. I was really busy, but, you know, I, I could make decisions on my time based on, you know, what was, what was going on. And so, you know, Tuesdays and Fridays, Steve asked me to coach the junior team and, and Namo jumped on, you know, as well. And, and we decided to do it together. And with that, in fact, you know, I think it's actually the other way around. I think Steve might have asked Namo and Namo was like, you know, let's do it together. I, memory escapes me but mm. we went to the first practice and Steve we walked in and it was like Steve you know how's what's going on you know where's the team and he's like yeah there's one kid like everyone else has gone to pioneers so we organized trials a load of kids came down and, and we ended up having a, a pretty good team that first year we had some really talented players you know Leon Bennett Harris was on that team probably still to this day the, the best shooter I've ever coached like I've never Sean Gray was a great shooter, but I've never seen anyone light up a gym like Leon Bennett Harris. It was unbelievable. And uh, we had some other guys, Yosa Abifade, Mustafa Alfaki, re really good team. And uh, we also had an under 16 team. And it, it's funny because from that under 16 team, I've worked with four or five of them now as coaches and they've become, you know, the assistants. We actually have one here, Brian Naguru, who's now, you know, the assistant coach at Kola. And he's also, um, it's funny, one of my players is phoning me now, sorry. Um, yeah, Brian Brian Naguru works here. He's now a strength and conditioning coach as well. And I, I coached him at, at Warriors in 2000, 
seven as uh, you know as a 14 15 year old and it's kind of you know it's a circle of life as such is you know sure. it's kind of going around full circle but yeah Namo and I, I I used to love coaching with Namo I, I think he's such an underrated basketball mind well, uh, you know I, I, I don't think anyone you know that really knows you know under would, would dismiss that because you know Namo is I call him a basketball genius not a basketball yeah. mind he's a basketball genius he understands um, the business and the you know he understands everything to do with the game yeah. at the nth degree um, mm-hmm. all the way from community to the highest level and you know I just think that um, I mean some of the projects that he's been involved with are, are incredible and you know obviously yeah. um, you know there's so many things we we can talk about in that way there um so yeah i mean there's you, you don't need to to say that I, i'll say it for you in that respect so he's an incredible guy yeah, and and x x's and o's sharp man like yeah. really really sharp helped me so much early in my career with a lot of x's and o's and and, and things that i didn't really understand and so nama was really you know i think he's had a big imprint on my coaching career so at this time, you're actually now getting involved in, in coaching. I, I guess is there, would I be right in saying, I'm going to put this in two ways so you can answer the first bit really quickly. Was that a slow burn to get into coaching? Or was there like, was there something always inside you that you said, you know, look, um, if I do stop playing, I think I can do this. Was that, is that correct in saying that? Or how, how would you put it? I mean, at at that type of age, um, I was playing, it was recreational for me. I I was good enough to play National League. I enjoyed it. I wasn't putting a lot of time into playing. I was putting in, you know, I would practice and probably shoot once a week. And for the most part, um, it was trial by fire. It was Steve saying, we have no team, you know, go and coach these kids. And I'll never forget, I coached against Warren Bob in my first year of, of coaching and he was coaching London Towers. I was coaching our under 16 boys and we went down to Richard Chandler school and we're in this game. And you think as a player, you'd know basketball, but if someone's been coaching basketball five, 10, 15 years, and Warren was a lot more experienced than me, he, you know, he, we played this game. It's a two and fro, you know, affair up and down, up and down, going into the fourth quarter, it's a tied game. And We'd worked on it before, but we hadn't worked on it for them to just surprise us with it in the fourth quarter. And, you know, a minute into the game, he just threw on a full court press. And I called a timeout. It came out the full court press. So I started drawing, drawing up the, you know, our press break to the boys. And he came out the full court press and our boys went back out there and kind of turned around and looked at me like, like, dude, they're not in, they're not pressing now. So we go back and we carry on playing. He throws back on the full court press and I, Essentially, I think that was the, you know, they hadn't changed the timeout rule there, but I'm pretty certain he forced me to burn all of my timeouts with it, you know, with less than five minutes to go in or more than five minutes to go in the game. And I left there literally thinking like, ah, that's coaching. So it's not turn up, shout at the boys a little bit, tell them to run around, tell them to do what you want. And it works. He, he you know, he, he had a game plan and an understanding and and that really helped me that one experience and and there's been you know others along the way that that really helped me to understand but yeah I was I kind of I played for two and a half three years and coached at the same time 
Mm. And then I broke my ankle, uh, 2009, 10 season. And I was just like, you're out for two months anyway, mm. just focus on coaching. And I just I never went back to playing. It was just, that was the end. And I, I've been a basketball coach ever since. And I never thought I was going to be a basketball coach. I, I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur or someone that, you know, had multiple income streams and be successful. I have friends that have gone on to be really, really successful, but I didn't really think I was going to be pulled back into the game. But I think you know this, Tony, and, and, and most coaches know it, you know, often you're in your last year of coaching and, and many times I've been in my last year of coaching and then that other kid walks through the door and you're like, ah, and you're like, I want to see, I want to see this group to the end. And that brings you to the next stage. And then you get another group and you're like, ah, I want to see this group to the end. So that's essentially been happening to me for 14 years is, you know, I, I always just think, and, you know, earlier on today, Brian was doing our year eight girls practice and I'm walking around and I'm like, this girl's almost six foot and she's 12. And there's another girl that looks like a really good point guard. And then, you become attached. So, you know, that takes me mid forties now, if I stay till the end of that group, but yeah. it's just that part of it, the youth mentor inside is really addictive to me. It's really something that, you know, it, I, I love basketball. I love X's and O's, but nothing will, will give me the satisfaction than, than watching someone make a layup for the first time or somebody break through a barrier. I think that that stuff's so important and it, it really gives me a buzz. Oh, that's awesome. Um, just, just quickly go back to that that key period, that two 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 oh six two eight, that kind of uh, around there. Um, what are you as a as a like? We use this word coaching philosophy, but okay. So just what are you kind of pinning yourself to? You're a defensive minded point guard who was pass first. So are you taking some of the things? Because, you know, sure as hell, you know, I did, you know, I wanted to press and trap, you know, and be aggressive defensively because that's what I was as a player. Um, what are you What are you pinning yourself at this early stage as a coach, um, you know, with those kids? Or is it something that you learned from Steve or, or Jimmy that you've taken, that you were taking there? I, I have no coaching philosophy outside of life stuff from Steve Alexander. I don't say that in a, a rude or disrespectful way. I just don't see the game the same as him now, or Jimmy. I, I, you know, I respect what they used to do, but there's a lot of things that I believe in that I didn't necessarily get taught as a, as a junior player. And so, my, my big... <laughs> sorry, but at that stage, were, what, what, at that stage, what was, what were you, what were you teaching and uh, what were you and Namo teaching together? And then what did you start to, to grow out of? Was there a, was there anything specific, you know, you know, hard work, com competitiveness, you know, all of those aspects that your programs always were, were about? Yeah. Well, my dear friend, Matt Johnson over in Reading, I, I never forget we we played them once uh i think in that first season and they smoked us and we played them later in the season and and matt made a, a very backhanded compliment and it really rattled namo and i and i love matt we got great relationship but he was like oh a, a london team that's just not running up and down and and, and dunking and, and pressing the whole game he says you guys are actually running sets so namo and i looked at each other like yeah this is us this is like jackson and namo it's not 
you know, it's not two guys that have just walked in and tried to, you know, pull a fast one or whatever. And so I think one of the things I've always wanted to do is, and sometimes I think I've done it and then I watch the games back and I'm like, oh God, we're, you know, we're awful. But I think I've always wanted to teach kids how to play the game properly, how to make proper reads, how to understand sets, where the reads out of the sets are, how to free flow into continuity out of your sets and not just be rigid and feel like you need to go back and forth. And, and that's what we were doing at that time. We were, you know, we were teaching real basic fundamentals. We would run, you know, a lot of high, low stuff. We would run a lot of Iverson stuff because that was the cool stuff, you know, back in 2008 and we would just play out of it. Uh, and so I think that was the philosophy. My philosophy's always been, you know, be hard nosed, 40 minutes of hell on defense. You, I, people say to me all the time, you know, if you come to Kona, it's not going to be an easy place because we're going to, you know, we're going to be hard. We're going to be a, you know, a rough house team and, and really bring it. But yeah, I think that side of the game isn't hard for me. It's, you know, it's really teaching the nuance and the, the X's and O's and the philosophy. And I, I speak to a lot of coaches, like I speak to Lloyd a lot about, you know, his philosophy on, on basketball. Like I pick Matt Guyman's brain as well. I think Matt's got a fantastic basketball mind. And so you're, you're you know, ever evolving, ever learning. Um, it's brilliant that I've got Junior and Brian here with me now because we, we have great talks in the office and information share. But I'd say, you know, 06, 07, sorry, to, to 2010, the philosophy was, I think to, you know, to, to, to play quickly, but to also understand how to play, not to just be, you know, a fast breaking transition team that was more athletic than everybody else is to really work on, on basketball IQ. And we would do breakdown drills in practice. We would break plays down, you know, start it three on three, you've got the action. And then we would implement that into, into the offense. And so, yeah, I think that it, it was to really teach good fundamental basketball and an understanding of offense and defensive basketball. So then when did you jump to the men's team? Um, what year was that roughly the Westminster men's team and what was the progression so, to that? So I didn't ever coach the men's team. Men's team. Sorry. Did, 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 I was, did, I was the assistant. Juniors. Yeah. No, well, so I was the, the juniors, uh, gosh, 07 to 2013. I think, and Namo and I did it together. And then from 2010 onwards, I did it, you know, with various different people and various different assistants. And I was junior's assistant coach, uh, you know, player coach. And I, I, you know, we were, we were playing together, but um, yeah, I didn't ever, I didn't ever coach the men's team at, at Warriors. Right. Okay. Um, and then where does, you know, the, the evolution to, to Cola, where, what, what's that timeline and how does that, that fit into this now? So I, 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 we used to have players at, at Warriors, some really incredible young boys. And I used to always try and mo uh, monitor and track their academics. So I would drive around, you know, West London, going to meet their, you know, form tutors and academic advisors and, and going to check on these kids. And I was just like, there has to be an easier way it, you know, they were great boys, but they were also wearing me out because there were so many different things going on. Kids have struggles. And so uh, I, I just one day had this thought and, and thought, you know, basketball academy might be the way. And, you know, you had a few of the academies that had emerged. Barking had been around for four or five years. Uh, I'd always 
liaised with Lloyd because we'd shared some players over the year. Teddy played for us. Ryan Martin had played for us, but they'd also, they were also at Barking Abbey at the time. So I just called Mark and, uh, well, I called Lloyd and he arranged for, for me, him and Mark to meet one day. And I drove over to Barking and I just said, how do you run a basketball academy? And they sat down and, and told me. And so we came over and we, you know, we made a proposal to, I think it was five different schools. And the, the head teacher at Cola at the time was interested. The head of PE, a guy called Brett Griffin, who one of my dearest friends now was just, you know, he was interested and he was all about young student athlete role models. It, he was so focused on that. He didn't know whether I could coach or whether the situation would be, you know, positive or not. He just knew that we would, you know, from, he didn't know it would be positive from a basketball standpoint, but he knew that the big focus was about empowering the youth and really having a big focus on them being role models around the school. And so they approved the, the basketball academy in 2013 for initially three months, which was quite difficult because we're obviously telling kids to come to the basketball academy, but we don't know if we're going to be there after Christmas. And so it was a little shot in the dark, but there were already some good boys that were here that were already part of the uh, Peck and Pride team at the time and, and a lot of the boys from Westminster Warriors were supposed to come and a lot of them didn't end up coming because they had I think you know looking back and just being completely transparent they had unrealistic unrealistic expectations with their their grades they seemed they all wanted to do A-levels they weren't necessarily A-level students and so they went elsewhere to do A-levels but they couldn't do them here so we ended up with three actual sixth form boys in the first year and that was the basketball academy but it massively benefited all of the key stage three and four kids because they mm -hmm. then ended up having full-time coaching the school coaches in the school that would work with them all the time and a lot of those that very first cohort are now all off in the states and they had this year of intense basketball training that really helped catapult them and, 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 you know, boost them on to becoming, you know, really good basketball players very early. It wasn't until the following year, 2014, where you had the likes of, you know, the more recognized players that started coming in. And, you know, I think by that time, my coaching philosophy had changed a little bit as well. My mindset had changed towards basketball uh, just through experience because I had more time to focus on it because I'd, I'd become a professional coach who was, sure. you know, in an office all the time, whereas previously, you know, I, I had other jobs. Mm, that's great. That's a great point. And I mean, you know, I, we can talk about the merits or, you know, positive, negative of the academy program. You know, I mean, I know that some people, you know, don't like it because they feel that it's killed um, the National Junior League structure. But, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm very much on the positive side. I mean, it's created um, a whole series of professional jobs for specifically for the coaches and support staff and you know there's no question there's no doubt in what the, it's done for a lot of young players it's given them a, sure. a real structured you know route to to basketball at a higher level whether they can play mm -hmm. at professional level is is a question but you know it's definitely yeah. given them the the structured route to get there so no i'm i'm, I'm fully behind that um we're going to come on to that um a little bit about your philosophy now but um 
talk to me about um, how the academy, you know, was was set up. It's, it starts with the boys, but you know, a lot of the success is now, you know, with the girls and and the women's side of the game. You know, how did that happen, and how did you end up transitioning, in, you know, into that yourself? Just the, the the girls was a bigger project initially. There was they they needed a bit more, uh, and I just. I coached them in London youth games initially and we just hit it off and a lot of the girls were saying to me, you know, coach, are you going to coach us? And I said, I don't know, we'll see what happens. And when we started the academy, it just made more sense to, you know, have a men's coach and have a women's coach rather than divvy it up. And uh, yeah, I just, I just ended up having this, you know, the most fantastic group of girls that kind of just came along some of them came through cola some of them came through other southern schools we had three girls moved down from harringay and people told us don't let those three girls come because you know they're going to destroy your program they'll be bad for your culture and you know we heard so many different things about them and now i, I speak to all three girls you know every couple of weeks and biggest sweethearts they just needed to be embraced they just needed mm -hmm. people to really invest in them and understand that behind a behavior is always a reason there's always a purpose behind that behavior is always a cause and you have to find what the cause is understand it help them to unpick it you're never going to unpick it yourself you have to help them unpick it and once you do that you know you're going to have a really successful young person first and foremost and we're always going to our mindset's always going to be person over player but you're also going to end up with a really successful basketball player if they're talented. And so, yeah, the girls, you know, we, we had a girl come from Pioneers, Kalia Edwards, who came and joined us, who's just about to graduate in the States. And they just, it was a rocky road initially and they took their lumps and they lost, you know, I, I, I've always actually on our recruitment presentation, I talk about the journey of those girls and, and, and what, their experience not only meant to me but what it meant to them and and one of the the most profound things I think that you'll you know you'll ever hear from me is that 2015 we made it to the under 16 national final with the girls and they were really really talented but we, we had a, a nemesis in in Len Bush and the Seven Oaks Suns and you know they beat us for years and we took our lumps and we kind of paid our dues and we beat them in the national semi-final and I let the girls celebrate and I let them celebrate. And this was in the days of the national final and the final being on the same day. It was about four hours apart at the final fours. And so I've always thought that was crazy because two biggest games of a kid's life and they happen on the same day, but yeah, B fixed that about five or six years ago. So, you know, the, uh, the we, we beat Seven Oaks in the semi-final. I let the girls celebrate we've got like a two hour holdover until we play Manchester Mystics in the final. I'll never discredit that Manchester Mystics team, but I did, I do believe that our girls were the better team, but some silly coach let the girls celebrate and in their minds, they switched off. They were like, ah, oh, we've done it. We've beat our nemesis. And we played the game halftime. I think we were down by one second half starts Manchester hit three. And I just watched the energy just sap out of our team and there's nothing we can do. And there's a, a famous picture. It's actually up on the wall over there. And there's a famous picture with me standing with my hands on my head. 
And I'm standing with my hands on my head and I'm looking and I'm watching some of the girls who are on the bench. There's about two minutes to go. We're down by 15 or so, losing an under-16 final. And in the picture, you look behind me and there's seven girls on the bench and all of their arms are interlinked and they're all together and they're unified. And for me, that typifies what I always want Cola Basketball to be, what I want any program for me to be. It's not about the result. It's not about what happens on the scoreboard and Jimmy taught me that and Steve taught me that and I you know it's been handed down to me but those girls at the time where they needed to be together were, were together and you fast forward 12 months and that under 16 team made up 80% of the team that then went on to win division two women and under 18s national league and all of these titles but it's the same group and they laid the foundations previously to that just by the way that they carried themselves the way that they conducted themselves and that that is one of you know i look at that picture and it's one of the proudest things that i'll ever do in coaching because at their lowest time they stuck together and i think that that's so so important so yes it was uh it's quite a journey with that group um, just talk about a little bit about a, a typical week, um, you know, in col in, uh, in cola basketball. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what what what? How do you set up a, a week? Let's say, for argument's sake, you're going to play on that Wednesday. Is obviously you know college games in pre-pandemic, and then mm -hmm. possibly weekend you're going to be playing some sort of national league games. How do you? What's your practice set up like? Um, do the do, do the girls and boys have to practice in before school, or you know just explain a little bit about the the whole pro way that you set up your program? So I have to I have to shout them out. We have the most amazing PE team here. They're so focused and supportive with basketball so they move a lot around with PE to give us a lot of extra time and uh, I'll you know I'll be eternally grateful to those guys so a, a typical week is one of the coaches may decide to do additional stuff on an, in the mornings but we're not we we very very seldomly have mandatory morning practice we usually put it in as, as an additional but if we say pre-pandemic the way that the work week would work is the girls and the boys flip-flop. So one day, if the girls practice first, the boys will practice second. And the next day, the boys will practice first, the girls will go after, just because we want to be fair. We want to, you know, them to be able to get home early on, you know, on different days. And so uh, Monday, depending on what happened on the weekend, would be more of a, a slower practice, a bit more of a, a walkthrough. We're not trying to kill anybody's legs, but if, just depending on how the weekend went, but Tuesday will always be, game planning for the Wednesday, the Wednesday game. We would then do a morning shoot around. If it's a double head of boys and girls, we draw the curtain in the middle of the hall, the boys go one end, the girls go the other end. And we have a specific routine that they that they go through, which is probably 45 minutes. It, it includes a lot of game shots, a lot of things that we'll probably do within our offense during that game. We might do a 10 minute walkthrough, but I just think often by that stage, it's it's late. You could do, you know, I, I got this from the NFL. You could do a walkthrough in a conference room or a changing room. You just, everyone just needs to know the action and the motion that, that they're going to do and talk about what you're going to do. And you can, you know, I've put in plays over the years without us actually being on a court running the play. You just say to them, you know, you're going to walk over here, you're going to do this, you know, for instance, a chin action or something like that. And you just, you know, you make a wrinkle and, and adjust. And so, we might do that on, on a Wednesday morning, play the game. 
Friday, uh, Thursday morning, Brian might do recovery with the, the students, just depending on how, you know, grueling the, the day before was, and then also whether there was a journey involved. And then Thursday, we'll have probably usually a quite a hard practice just because, yes, it's the day after a game, but it's also two days away from the weekend. And then on mm. Friday, we'll do a walkthrough. So for instance, this week, we've got three morning trainings. We've got tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, uh, tomorrow's optional shoot around so the kids don't have to come, but they can choose to come. Thursday is optional again, and then Friday is going to be mandatory for the girls because they have a game on on the weekend. So it changes a lot. Then they have you know strength, strength and conditioning, which is planned within their timetable in school. So the timetable, the academic timetable, is always set, and then we plug in individuals and we plug in strength and conditioning around their you know their open periods during the day. And you said that, um, you know, as any coach, you know, is, is there's an evolution process. So, yeah. you know, talk to me a little bit about how your philosophy has changed, specifically mainly from the tactical stage, because I don't think you can um, just listening to how passionate you have been talking about, you know, developing people, you know, and that's obviously, um, you know, our sport yeah. is just, you know, we all believe in our sport to be the ultimate um, people developer, life skill developer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, talk to me a little bit about from a tactical point of view, where you feel that you've uh, evolved and, and that your philosophy has changed. So I, I hope Alan Keane watches this. I don't know if you would. I hate name dropping on podcasts, but I think Three years in a row, I've called Alan Keane at some point of a season and been like, Alan, everything I'm doing is broken. Everything. Like, the, the kids don't understand what I'm trying to teach. I must be going wrong. I must be doing anything. I, I, you know, I must be doing something wrong because they want to be good, but I'm not teaching them in the right way. And I think, you know, one of the best things you can ever do as a coach, and I, I, I love Alan for being that sounding board. We don't speak all the time. We're not exceptionally close, but just that, at those times I have called him and it is to pivot if something's not working and be adaptable. And so I've run almost every man to man offense you can think about, you know, we've run Princeton offense. We've run for a traditional four out one in we've run dribble drive. We tried flow two years ago, flow motion. We've done loads of stuff at the start of this season. We were running a five out, didn't like it, didn't like the way it feels. So we flipped to something that I think better suits this group. And I, so I think where I've evolved to now is to be a lot more adaptable mm. and to really just teach the game. And I'm okay with free-flowing basketball as long as it's free-flowing basketball with IQ. And, you know, we, we will run some sets, maybe not as many sets as we used to run. I, I would rather we play free-flowing with some actions and some understanding what to do out of those actions. But yeah, I think when I was back at Westminster Warriors back in the day, like we would run a set start to finish and it would be this read and this read and this read and this read. And there was no, nothing really out of that. Whereas now we're always going to have a base continuity. I'm not going to say what a base continuity is this year. Most of division one women will know already, but we've got a base continuity and then some different sets, some different wrinkles out of that, but trying to keep it as simple as possible, not to overcomplicate it for the players. And then again, defensively, we have 
a philosophy which we've changed this year, but I, I like our philosophy and, and Brian is actually coaching our defense this year. So he is the defensive coordinator. I We talk about it, but I don't make decisions on it. He makes decisions on it. He'll just run things by me, but I don't, I don't undermine or question anything he's doing. And he, he's a really bright young mind and, and Junior will get involved from time to time, even with the girls too. Like our press breaks actually, not our press breaks, sorry, our, our press is actually taught by junior so on our practice plan it will say coach junior comes in for you know the, the press and I stay out of it again it's nothing to do with me and I, I think one of the things um that is a strength um and I've got many many weaknesses one of the things is strength I've never been afraid for somebody to come into my practice and teach our kids mm. and I don't need our kids to think that I've got the answer to everything I might try and provide the solution to everything, but it might not be my answer. So Steve Veer, in our, you know, our really, really successful year in 2017, that was Steve's offense that Steve brought in and he taught the kids. And he was shocked when I said to him, I was like, it's your show, go and, go and take, you know, go and teach them everything that you want. And uh, Ogo Adigboy has come in and, and helped us with offense over the years and, and helped us, you know, learn some things from the pro game. And I think, if there's two things that I've learned is never be afraid to have somebody else come in and, and, and help you. Uh, and, you know, it's absolutely fine. Don't be precious about your situation and, and to be adaptable. It's another guy, actually, I learned a lot about zone. There's a, a guy called John Harris who used to coach up. I want to say Norfolk. I hope he doesn't hate me for saying that, but he's moved. He's since moved to Seattle, but he taught me so much about zone years ago. And he came into my practice thinking I was going to teach him. Mm. And then he, he really helped, you know, a lot with our zone principles. So I think, you know, being open to letting people come into your practice and, and help you is, is really, really important. Don't try and be the one-stop shop that, you know, you've got the answers for your team all of the time. There's nothing wrong with getting help. It's, it's funny you should say that because tomorrow when I do a, a pretty big presentation for, for Basel England, I'm, you know, that's one of my key things at the end of the presentation is to say to coaches, listen, you know, you've got to go and search up coaches from every, every level, but, you know, certainly the levels above you do not think that you're at the highest level. I can tell you that for now, because every yeah. single time you can, you know, even Nick Nurse and Chris Finch are still searching for answers. You know, I mean, sure. Chris, you know, Nick, Nick had Scariola as, as one of his as assistants. And arguably yeah. when Nick was the head coach of the, the Raptors, you know, Sergio was a, a higher level coach than what he was. So, you know, at, at any time, you know, we, we always uh, search in and, uh, you know, should never, should always show humility in that, in that area. And, and, and also just my last point on that, uh, I love what you're saying about, um, you know, as coaches, we, you know, sometimes it's not wrong in front of a, your group um, to be able to admit that you're wrong as a coach. You know, you either made the wrong tactical decision, you made the wrong timeout, the wrong substitution, or you're actually, you put a tactic on the floor or a drill on the floor and it doesn't work. And you just have to sometimes just shrug your shoulders and say, hey, you know, it's not working. We're going to junk it and we're moving on. And I think that um, a lot of younger coaches don't really understand that principle, I don't think. Yeah, I, I can, I, our practice usually starts at 3.40 in the afternoon. I cannot go down until four o'clock. Practice will have started whether I'm in there or not. 
the, the team is bigger than me. The program is bigger than me. If I'm not there, they will have started practice. If Brian can't go down there and Jay's busy, they will have started practice. They'll be in a drill and they, they know that that's their responsibility. And I think that that's part of, of teaching. And the other thing is, is to give young people, there's nothing more powerful than kids teaching kids. As much as we want to, you know, say to them, you know, I'm, I'm an old man almost now. And I say to them, you know, as much as we want to say to them, you know, we know everything, we've got the answer to everything. A teammate coming over and saying, you know, you, you didn't call the ball screen or you didn't, you know, you, you didn't let me know that, uh, you know, there was a backside cut or we've got to talk. They're more likely to listen to that than they are to me in the right situation. And so they have to be able, you know, accountable. They have to be able to, to take practice. Last Wednesday, our girls took practice start to finish, put a practice plan together and they did it. I would encourage all coaches to do that. Just let your team run a practice. A, they'll realize how difficult it is. <laughs> but B, whilst they realize how difficult it is, it is really going to help upskill them for future situations and, and to let them understand, you know, you've got to plan, you've got to be diligent in what you're doing. Otherwise, something is going to, you know, it's going to get lost in transition or you're going to miss something. And so, uh, yeah, these are just, you know, I'm forever learning. I'm forever evolving. I'll never have the answer to everything. Um, but I'm always open. I always want to, you know, there's some young coaches that reach out to me and they ask, you know, for help and support. And I'm always happy to to support them. I, you know, I'm a big believer. You can be hard on your kids to, to make them competitive, but when they need you the most, you should always be there. And there's a lot of things bigger than basketball. And that's so important. I think that our players, they understand it. They don't always understand the complete lesson until it's over. And you know that you've been coaching for, you know, longer than me and you, you, you get that. But eventually one day they'll understand that you're, you're pushing them to really be their best and uh, you know you see these things all over the world I just finished watching Last Chance You over the weekend mm. and I, I listened to, to John Mosley talk about you know I'm asking you guys to do extra and you're mad with me and I just sat back in in my chair and just thought <laughs> how many times have I been through that and he he summarized it so well but to listen to somebody else say it, it was just uh, it was incredible so yeah so yeah. Great yeah, just always that's a that's a great point and um you know i mean you know that's why you know we're so excited to have you you know on because that's a philosophy that came from that those westminster days and subsequently also at brixton as well i know that because you know that's what we you know between you know myself and joe at the start and you know subsequently at the times you know what else was going on even when I was at Hackney Academy you know those those younger people do come to me um, now and fully understand why you know we did what we did back in those days and act you know and how hard we were on them but you know none of them you know uh, say a bad word about that matter of fact it's only ever positive about how that's helped them in life and uh, changed you know their, their whole um, outlook towards everything they do so great stuff um just i you'd start touching on this here um talk to me a little bit about um you know i i use this word a lot about british coaches and the coaching fraternity if there is one um you know you've come from a unique you know standpoint so 
what do you feel now about you know your generation of coaches your your a, a fixture in in the academy system do you think that you're working for each other do you feel we're going in the right direction with coaching just um, there was a lot of lot there to unpick yeah I, I i do i mean i wish academies were around when i was a kid that would have been you know an incredible experience i, I went to a, a college that had a lot of young players and uh, you know there were a lot of guys that went to my college there were some guys from from london towers and some brixton guys but we were never coached we never we weren't exposed to the things that our students are exposed to now i do think that there's a lot of information sharing within the coaches you know within the coaching fraternity there are a lot of guys that i can call and you know i said i named alan as one of them but there's a lot of guys that I can call and I can seek counsel. You know, what do you think of this? What do you think of this situation? Sometimes to do with refereeing decisions, if I've had, you know, a bad weekend and I'm frustrated and some of the other guys will, you know, they look at it and they'll be like, yeah, eh, maybe you were emotional at the time or now nah, you're right. You know, that looked like, you know, it's a pretty bad call. So I, I do think that guys stick together. I think that, you know, everyone has different recruitment techniques. We don't get into recruitment battles over kids because very similar to, to how Jimmy was, we do recruit here, but we're not aggressive with recruitment. We're going to tell students what we've got. And if they choose to go somewhere else, no problem. And the guys over at Barking, we've got a good relationship with them because kids will often come here and they'll say, oh, well, the guys at Barking said you've got a great program too. This is what they have. This is what you have. Now it's up to you to choose personalities or look at academic you know academic scores and rankings and you make the choice which one is the right situation for you but for us you know I, I do feel supported by a lot of the other basketball academies I feel like there are some good guys out there you know I have to shout out Jesse Sazant who always you know it's been very supportive with me over the years he's done a lot for our program as an external person and so yeah, I do. I, I feel supported. I, I like Neil. I get on with Neil. And I think Neil, you know, is running a good program up at, at Myersco. I like Matt Shaw in, in Derby as well. Like there's there's a lot of good guys doing stuff for the right reasons and, and trying to really grow the game and, you know, just uh, allow the Academy League to flourish and, and, and blossom. So, yeah, I, I do think that it's a good structure. And whilst it has changed under 18 basketball, I don't think it's destroyed it. I just think it's changed it ever so slightly. And we we still take under 18 seriously. I think we're four-time defending girls under 18 champions. And it means a lot to us. We celebrate the hell out of it when girls win. Like, it's a big thing for us. So I don't think it's been downplayed. I just think there, there's always going to be a, a, a major focus. Everyone, people aren't silly. People are going to know where the majority of the talent is and where it's playing and things. But I still think that there's there's value in it. And I still think that, you know, the, the academies haven't hurt this country's basketball system, if anything. I think it's, it's really added to it. And you, you speak to people from other countries, they're like, wow, your academy setup's incredible. They get how many hours? Mm. It's just, it's how we view it and what you do with those hours that are really going to count, that are going to matter. Uh, I got a couple of quick more questions on this coaching stuff. The first one is um, one thing with all of this success, and it really is huge, huge success. Um, have you, have you, have you linked into the national team system? Um, and what, if not, why 
is that a personal decision or just that it hasn't it hasn't manifested itself uh i mean for me i i think my skill is relationships and i can't build relationships and get a team to really believe in me over you know a, a two-week training camp or a 10-day training camp and I think maybe one day I would be willing to do it I think I'd have to work with somebody who had a really strong background in X's and O's or in Europe or in international basketball to, to support with that uh, but I would also need more time with the students because the, the way that people understand relationships is through adversity through falling down through you know picking people up through allowing people to pick you up too sometimes mm. you can walk in the gym and you're having the worst day ever and you know the kids just do that one little thing that lifts you that makes you feel like I'm so glad that I didn't say I'm not coming to training today because of whatever you know I, I, I say to a lot of people you know my, my grand and I you know digress ever so slightly but my grand is my favorite person ever I love my mom whatever but my grand number one person ever in on the planet to me and the day my grand passed away 2012 I was doing some work for reach and teach in a primary school on a roof in Islington Hanover primary school and I still went to coach that session and those kids the sun was out those kids lifted me so much that day it was absolutely incredible and it was the I was one of the you know things that I think really helped me through that really, really tough day. Mm. I just don't know if me turning up and having, you know, 10 days with a team is really the value that that team would need. I think that there are better skilled people out there that are able to implement what they need to implement from an X's and O's standpoint and stuff like that. Maybe I might be good as an assistant at that level and to really help with, you know, the team chemistry and things like that. But I, I just, it's the, it's the brief period that they're together. I think if there was a, a two or three year span, but yeah, people, people have asked me before. I haven't been, you know, blackballed. There's no, no one's tried to keep me out of it. There's, you know, basketball England have asked me at different times, specific coaches when they've got jobs have asked me, you know, would you get involved? And for whatever reason I, I've said, you know, I don't necessarily think it would be, best tailored to me and the other thing is I think it takes me away from the kids that I'm committed to here that I think are really important to me and I I've made a promise to them for you know their tenure that I'll, I'll be here and I'll be around so that's why I haven't really been involved in the international program definitely not blackballed or never you know never no, no, asked or anything no. okay. been so uh you know uh, this question now is you know um I still feel very pertinent but um, you know, you're, you're, you're one of the higher profile, um, you know, black coaches in this country or coaches from, mm -hmm. uh, from an ethnic minority. Um, right. you feel that that carries, um, a, a, like a weight and a responsibility. Um, do you feel it's, you know, do you think that we're still doing enough to encourage, um, people from ethnic minorities into coaching? at the higher levels, not just at community, community coaching. Um, mm. you know, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, our country's a little different to quite a few other countries. I think the, 
the dynamic in the BBL, there's quite a few black coaches coaching in the BBL, I'm sure. There's there's quite a few. I think of Atiba, Vince, Ooh, Paul James, yeah. Creon. Um, there's a few other guys. I'm, I'm definitely missing somebody. But, yeah, I think, you know, for... Regardless of what colour I am, I'm always going to carry myself with class. I always believe that, you know, you should carry yourself in a certain way. But I definitely do, you know, I see that we need to carry ourselves and, and pave the way for future coaches to let them know that there's an opportunity for them to be, you know, a professional coach. And whilst, you know, I'm not an NBA coach and I'm not on a six-figure salary, my profession is coaching. And so... You know, there's opportunities out there for, you know, young ethnic minority coaches to go out there and, and do it. And a big part of it is, you know, to have self-belief, to understand that, you know, you're not you're not limited by your color in any situation. You, you might experience prejudice at some level in some, you know, in some area of your life. But whilst you experience that prejudice, that should never be the thing that stops you. It should never be the thing that, you know, if anything, you should want to push back against that to show people that it's possible. And yeah, for me, you know, we, we built something here from scratch. I don't know. I have been offered a few jobs over the years in different places. So mm -hmm. again, you know, through the success here, I've, I've had a few different people reach out to me and ask me if I'd be willing to, to try something new, but yeah, I, I, I think that regardless of your color and your, you know, your background coaching is coaching to me and you should just go out and you shouldn't look at, you know, how you're going to be viewed. If I saw a, a black coach turn up with 12, you know, white Caucasian kids, I would mm. think great. Fantastic. If I see a white Caucasian coach with turn up with 12 black kids, coach those kids, man, like love your kids, treat them the best way you know how. And, you know, if they're ever faced with adversity, be the person that they need in their life. You know, there's a famous saying, you know, be who you needed when you were younger. And that shouldn't, there should be no significance as to whether that person's black, white, green or blue. It's, uh, it's just what it is. But yeah, I would love to see more young coaches step through and really step up and, and want to take coaching on as a full-time profession. I think that that's important. Yeah. And I, mean, I hope I'm a role model. No, black I mean, coach. you're definitely a role model. And uh, just to, I just want to bring this up um, because there have been a couple of instances and I haven't had a platform to say this, but um, last year there, there was a couple of these, what I felt were ill-informed, Ill let's say, statements where people, you know, majority were white coaches who were saying they didn't understand how to coach the black athlete. Um, or, mm -hmm. you know, and I was just like exactly what you've just said um, from day one, you know, I don't, you know, I was never coaching color. I was coaching players and, you know, whether it was Andrew Sullivan or Richard Midgley, it didn't matter. If you could play, you're going to be on the floor and I wanted to teach you. Um, especially if you could to, play like those two. Especially if you could play like those two. <laughs> That's why I gave you those two kind of uh, examples who are kind of yeah. like opposite ends. And, but my point being is that, um, you know, like you just said, the most important thing is to understand people and you need to understand what was going on off the court. Now, when you got outside of the lines, then you would have to understand people's circumstances. The fact that yeah. someone 
um, was scared to travel from, you know, one part of London to another, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all these type of things that, you know, yeah. if you didn't really understand those people, if you don't get to know them, you didn't understand their family, their background. So I just want to say, you know, firstly, we got to coach people, um, you know, not for sure color. And then secondly, you've got to understand people like you've said right from the start um, for today. So it's great, really great stuff. Okay, three real quick questions. You've already answered one of them. So um, favorite basketball coach? Ever, like, does Ever. coach me? Or? No, uh, it can be anywhere. It could be coach you, or it could be NBA. It could be NCAA. Um, Man, I, look, when when John Cheney died last year, that hit me. I don't know if that was this year or last. That hit me because I, growing up, I used to watch those Temple teams, and you know that guy special guy like if you ever hear him speak and stuff he's authentic um, to a t and authentic authenticity is one of the biggest things that i preach to our players is you don't need to come and be anybody else you need to be the best version of yourself and john cheney was definitely that and, uh, and, and of course I know, well, while you're thinking of that you could tell the, the famous john cheney story of when uh the players were on the bus and they always used to have to sit there in silence um and yeah. then the little fire broke out on the bus and no he no one said anything and he turned around and said why did anyone say anything and they say because we can't say anything coach that's a exactly. true story as well exactly. and then, and shows they were coachable they nearly died but they, you know they, they, they were coachable um i you know, too many guys to, to, to say one. I love Coach K. Like, I, I don't know, you know, too much about him in terms of his political views or anything, but just listening to, you know, things like, you know, his audio book, The Gold Standard, and he's got another book that I read a few years ago. Like, he's definitely life first before X's and O's. He's definitely about, you know, empowerment. And so, yeah, I like, you know, th th there's a lot of guys that, you know, I probably I, I will come off this call and I'll be like, damn, why didn't I say that person? But I, you know what I'll, I'll say, I'll say Jimmy Rogers, Joe White, Steve Alexander, Jabbar and Amiko Etete uh, and Junior Williams. He coached me too for a period of time. So all of those guys that coach me, I would say, you know, incredible people and uh, people that I aspire to be like, Joe never coached me, but Joe would always after every single game, bring me over, sit me on the bench. I don't know why he liked me, why he was interested. It's just a measure of the man. Joe would bring me over and say, why do you think Steve was shouting at you? Why do you think you were doing this? Oh, well, he says I dribbled too much, but I wasn't dribbling. He's like, son, you were dribbling too much. Just listen to him. He's going to try and take you to the right place. And Joe's just, uh, God rest his soul, just the greatest person, man. Forget coach, just the greatest person. So, uh, yeah, those guys I'll mention. Okay. Uh, favorite basketball drill? That's a, that's wow. yeah. yeah, that's broad question for me. Um, favorite basketball one, yeah. drill. Maybe the maybe but, the one that you use the most at the moment. The one you like at the moment. Uh, wow. I'm trying to think. Favorite basket. We do so many drills, man. Uh, favorite basketball drill. Let me think. Let me think. Uh, five man weave. Three on two, two on one back, one on one. Let me do that. You know, I'll do that all day, every day. It's old school, but the players get to express themselves. 11 man fast break, great drill. 
uh, loads of drills. We do loads of finishing drills here. We do loads of footwork drills and different stuff. I, sorry, I'm horrible at pinning down one answer. No, 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 oh, no. Yeah. that's great. That's loads great. Of- All good stuff. All good stuff. And then let's finish it up with your, your favorite go-to saying or statement, which you said at the start. It's got to be, is it? You could. I mean, I got tons. I've got tons. Uh, we have on the wall written at the moment values over virtues, uh, values over victories. Sorry, not virtues. Values over victories is a really, really you know profound one. The best apology is change behavior is one that we're using at the moment because we've got some of our kids that come out of pand- the pandemic and don't really understand. But yeah, do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it and be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. If you say that to our kids, they'll be like, oh, you spoke to Coach Jackson. And so, uh, but it's just, yeah, broken record stuff for me. I'm always going to, I'm always going to harp on that stuff. Okay. Coach, listen, I, I, I think there's going to be, you know, a lot of success for you in the, in the future. Um, you. you know, uh, the, 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 you could just feel like, I mean, everything that you do, the whole culture that you build there is so immense, you know, it's right being there from the start. So, um, those young people, you know, are really lucky to have you. But, you know, I hope that you do continue to push, you know, as a coach. And I know that you've got junior there. And like you say, that's a great core. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on uh, tonight and uh, wish you all, all the success in this this crazy time and season or what little there is of it. Um, and hope that uh, um, we can eventually uh, meet sometime in the, in the future. Definitely, yeah, no, it'd be good to see you in person one day soon. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. And uh, yeah, hope some way, shape or form this touches one young coach and, and can give them some kind of inspiration. So thanks for having me on. Great, great thing that you're doing, you know, with the other people that you're having on. And uh, yeah, wish you all the success too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Time Out. You can now find all of our episodes on iTunes and Spotify. So please like, subscribe and let us know who you'd like to hear from in a future episode.